Good morning, everyone. What a pleasure to worship the Lord together. And happy Mother's Day to you mothers out there. We appreciate all of you. And uh, yeah, what a blessing it is to have family in Christ, to be united with our great Lord who loves us, who's given everything for us. Um, a couple of announcements. We do have the AGM coming up next week. So if you just stick around after the service, coffee and tea, then we'll get into that. And uh, you're all invited to be there. Uh, also, there is a new roster out in the foyer, so have a look at that. If there's anything that catches your eye, if the Lord should lead you to serve in some way, uh, that's awesome. We really want to encourage everyone to use the gifts God's given them and just to minister one to another uh, as he ministers to and through us. Uh, we'll be in Genesis chapter 43 if you want to turn there. And let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks so much for a beautiful day. Thank you for our mums. Thank you for providing everything for us. Even before we were thought of by people, we were designed and known and loved by you. And I thank you, Lord, that you have made room for us in the body of Christ, that you have joined us together through faith in Jesus, that you've given us one spirit, new hearts, and a future that starts even now by experiencing your presence being used by you, and being fruitful for your glory by your grace. And I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to gather, to read your word, and I pray that you would quicken us by your spirit, that you'd show us how to apply your word to our lives personally, and just to be those who are grateful, thankful, and praising you for your goodness toward us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any procrastinators here today? We could be selective procrastinators. There's certain things that we might procrastinate about because we're not looking forward to the job. Or I think about how many times we have put something off and when we had a good result, wonder, well, why did I wait so long to actually do that? That happened for me a few years ago. I had surgery to, to repair a couple of hernias and I had had them for years, but I just hadn't had them looked at. And it was only after the procedure that I realized how much it had actually impacted my life, that I had just gotten used to discomfort, just doing nor normal tasks, like sitting down, picking things up. And then when it was all dealt with, I was like, I should have done this years ago. I, I really enjoyed that relief. And the question to me, if you said, why did you procrastinate? Well, there are answers. Uh, it was a matter of priorities, setting aside the time to book an appointment, to go, because you know that if you book the appointment, you now have to get scans. And then you have to talk to a specialist. And then you need to, there's this whole process that, it, and then taking time off work, not being able to lift or drive for so many weeks. And it's like, you've got to carve out that schedule and say, this is a matter of priority. I need to get this done. I did know a man in the States who always wore a trench coat because he had a very large hernia that was obvious. And it was a life-threatening one. But he decided he was unwilling to undergo treatment because of the high risk of the surgery. So he, he was actually at high risk every single day because of how serious his hernia was. But he would rather, he was more comfortable living with it and being at risk every day than risking having it fixed. And it's very easy for us with our outcomes to say, oh, you should do this or you should do that based on our experience, based upon our reading of God's word. 
but we need to decide for ourselves. Like it's easy to tell someone else what they should do with their life, but it's for us to decide if we're going to follow Jesus today or if we're going to procrastinate, if we're going to put off doing the thing that he's told us to do because of the negative repercussions or the impact it might make on our daily life. Now, no surgery that's done by medical professionals can guarantee an outcome, right? Complications can happen. But the blessing, the rewards of God for those who trust him, they always exceed expectation because God gives to us beyond what we could ever ask or think. And we see this revealed by his spirit. So in Genesis 43, we've come to a place, Joseph, he's alive and well in Canaan. His family doesn't know that. Uh, his family was in Canaan. He was in Egypt. The governor, his brothers came to buy food and he disguised himself. He acted rough towards them and he, in, he imprisoned them for three days and then he sent them home with provisions, loads of grain and their money was returned. So the brothers returned to Jacob, their father, and say, well, if we ever want to go back, we have to take Benjamin with us, our youngest brother. And Jacob's like, no way. I'm not going to be, you bereaved me once. I'm not going to be bereaved of Benjamin as well and go down to my grave in sorrow. Now their survival depended upon them getting grain in Egypt. That was the only place in the world where there was food at this time. So the survival of Jacob, Benjamin, his whole household depended on them going the way that God had provided in getting that grain in Egypt. But Jacob dug in his heels. He's like, no not going. And it was easy to say when his stores were full of food, when they had plenty at the time. But God would bring him to a place of desperation where it's like, you know, it's not convenient to procrastinate. It never is. It's a mirage. It seems convenient, but we're putting off good that God has in store, as we'll see. Genesis 43 verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. But Judas, Judas spoke to him saying, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. The famine continues. The grain was finally depleted. And Jacob says, go back, buy us a little food. And I'm just like, little food, as if it's a big difference from a lot of food. It, it reminds me a bit of what Jacob, uh, excuse me, what Lot said after God delivered him from Sodom. The angels came and warned him that he would destroy the city. And he says, leave now, go to the mountain. And what did Lot say? He's like, oh no, I can't go to the mountain. Let me just stay in this little city. Isn't it little? I'll just stay in this city and I'll be safe there. I appreciate you saving me, but can't I just go there? So he didn't have the faith at the time. He believed in God, but he wasn't willing to submit to what God told him to do. But God, through the angel, said, well, I've heard you. I'm going to answer yes. And when it was time to flee, it said that he lingered. He's procrastinating leaving. And it says the angel took him by the hand. And it's like, if God had not divinely intervened and taken him by the hand and brought him out of the city, he would have perished with the city. But by God's grace, he was, his life was preserved. Now Jacob, he's like, go get us a little food. 
And Judah's like, you've made a big oversight. We can't go back there unless Benjamin comes with us because the governor said, and you haven't had to deal with him, but I know he's not going to let it slide. We need to bring him with us. You know, when God opens a door of salvation and deliverance, we are not naturally inclined to go that way. The fact that there was a global flood and only eight people entered the ark illustrates that very well. Like there was one way of salvation. Eight people out of billions chose that way. They were willing to submit to God's way. And like Lot or Jacob, we can beg, we can bargain to have our way because surely there must be a better, easier, faster, more convenient way, a more efficient way to get what we want rather than submitting to God's way for what we need and he's already provided for us. So what does God do? He takes us by the hand. He's patient. He's gentle with us. And he allows a long famine, a global flood. He allows our resources to slowly dry up. He causes our health to decline. He brings us to a place of depression deepening so that when we are desperate, we will turn to him and submit to him and his ways. He knows the unbelief that's in our hearts. And he's, he will use these circumstances to bring it to our understanding so we might confess it and repent to surrender to his will because it's like if we don't obey him in faith we perish that remains true we need him he is our life picking up in verse six and Israel said why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother but they said the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family saying is your father still alive have you another brother and we told him according to these words could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel's father, send the lad with me. We will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. Jacob is a bit resentful towards his sons. He feels rather hard done by, blamed them really for his controlling and possessive behavior with his son. Where he's like, why'd you guys throw me under the bus? Why did you tell him that you had another brother? He's still really irked about this. He's not willing to let it go. He's like, you've wronged me. You volunteered the fact that you have another brother. And they go, well, it's not like that at all. He asked us very pointed questions. And we know how he was able to do so. It's because he was their brother. He knew the right questions to ask and he put them under the pump. They didn't want to lie. And it's a good thing they didn't. They spoke the truth. And they're like, how could we know? That in telling him we had a younger brother, he's like, well, you can't buy food unless I see him. Imagine if that happens. Someone just casually, you're talking about, are you, do you have a brother or sister? Yeah, I have a sister. Oh, well, I'm not going to sell you anything until I see her and talk to her. You, you would never expect that. And so they're like, dad, give us a break. We had no idea that's what he was getting at because they knew how sensitive Jacob was about Benjamin. Now, Reuben, previously, he had promised that he's like, on the lives of my two sons, I will bring him back. But now Judah pipes up, and he says, 
This is the only way we can provide food for our family. I will be surety for him. I will be responsible to bring him back to you. And if I don't, I will bear the blame forever. I'm willing to take that on against my reputation. Now, this is ironic, right? Because Judah, he is the one who suggested they sell Joseph back in the day, 20 plus years prior. And we see a change in Judah here because though Benjamin was Jacob's favorite, he was coddled, he was protected. He had gone from resentment that he had with Joseph and hatred of Joseph to now compassion and care, both for his dad and his brother. And he says, I will be responsible. I'll make sure he comes back safe. And he says, for if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. So Judah is also paying attention to their stores of grain depleting. And he's like, why aren't we going back? Well, we know because dad doesn't want Benjamin to go. And, if, and we're lingering, we're procrastinating, we're delaying. And we could have been there and back and had all the grain we need, but instead we're risking our family's lives, our future, because dad is unwilling to yield. They wouldn't submit to the way God provided. And th- he would have loved that, right? If, if he said, hey dad, this could all be over right now. He's like, oh, I'd like to be there. He doesn't want to go through the trouble of letting go of his son, of risking, right, this risk of letting his son go to Egypt. But in his wisdom, God did not create life with a skip button. So you can skip to the next track. So you can avoid the inner turmoil God will bring through circumstances to increase our faith, to expose our unbelief, and our worries and anxieties. And it's like, we just want it to be over. But in the process, God has wise plans of how he's going to use that to change us. Jacob, he's obsessed over keeping Benjamin near him, protecting him. Judah, he's fixed on getting food for this family so that they don't starve. But God had something totally different in store. Or he had something, he wanted to do that, but more. Rejoicing. Fellowship, uniting a family that had been cut off because of hatred and deceit. And the procrastination, because of bad things that could happen, it ended up withholding certain good things that God intended to happen. Do you see how that works? Like, they're procrastinating because they see only risk. But in doing so, they hindered God or they prevented themselves from receiving the plans that God had, this joyful reunion, feasting, rejoicing in a lost son, providing for their family. And I wonder how many good things we have yet to receive that God has actually set aside and saying, this is yours, this is yours, this is for you. It's all waiting here, but will you submit to my way? Will you do things how I say to do them? Or will you keep going your own way? Keep putting off this thing. So refusal to obey God, it leads to delay a blessing that God has ordained from the beginning. He's already given it, but we have yet to receive it. And we'll see as we go on that that is what is happening here. Verse 11. And their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. 
Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man, and may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your older other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Jacob finally comes to recognize the gravity of the situation, that their life depends upon Benjamin going to Egypt. And he'd been blaming his sons for wronging him. He had been digging in his heels stubbornly, but now he finally accepts it as unavoidable. Like this is, okay, this is how it has to be. I need to release Benjamin so that we can eat, so that we can survive this famine. And so he directs his sons wisely in how to approach the governor. He gives them all these gifts, the best of the land that they would bring, double money to make sure that they couldn't hold that against them, that they hadn't, that they had received their money back. Uh, and so they bring double, bring more money, and then, uh, you know, then he'll let your brother go and take Benjamin. Take Benjamin with you. Throwing himself at the mercy of Almighty God. He's not looking for mercy from the governor. He's looking for mercy from God and says, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So this is not fatalistic. He takes this important step to surrender before God, to throw himself on the mercy of God, to, to save his son, to save his family. It's like what Esther did when she was uh, counseled by Mordecai to go before King Ahasuerus. She's the queen, but the rule of the Medes and Persians was, if you appear before the king unannounced, it is the death sentence. You must be pardoned from that if you will live. And she hadn't been summoned for 30 days. Mordecai was like, hey, God's going to deliver his people. Who knows if you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Like, the salvation of God's people is going to happen. But will you be part of it? Or will you be afraid? And so she heeded the counsel of her cousin. She says, seek the Lord in prayer and fasting for three days. My maids and I will do likewise. And then I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Fate had nothing to do with it. She threw herself upon the mercy of God to find favor in the sight of the king to sacrifice her own life, potentially, to save others. And that's what dying to self looks like. It's a conscious choice to obey God in spite of how we feel, in spite of what we're afraid could happen or will happen. But Jesus was not afraid as he went to the cross. He knew what was going to happen. He's like, you know, I could get crucified. This could be bad. No, he knew he was going to be crucified, and in the end, it would be good and accomplish God's purposes. Jacob feared being bereaved of Benjamin. Esther, she's afraid to break the law because of the punishment that could come. But both came to a place of surrender before God and threw themselves upon his mercy, the almighty living God who could save them, who could give them favor. And the fear of God, it helps us overcome our fears and our worries. Not to the end that we would have our way, but that we would know God and go his way. Rather than being transactional, and I think we can dumb down our relationship with God to almost like a, a transactional thing. Like, I repent, you forgive me. I pray you do this, what I ask for. And it's just like, I do this, you do that. One hand washing the other. When it's a master to his servant, it's a father to the child, that we are the needy child who needs the father, and we need his, his protection and his provision and everything because we can't survive without him. 
He is our life. But it's relational. A love relationship. It's on the basis of who God is and his love for us and what he's done. To demonstrate that love, that's what makes us respond to him in obedience. It's not because we hope to get something out of it. It's because of all he's done, all he's given, who he is. And our identity is in him. And so we rejoice even to do the thing we're very afraid of doing because he loves us and nothing can separate us from his love. It's that needy child trusting the father, reaching out, saying, take me by the hand, Lord. And he's extended it to us. Will we trust him to follow him? Genesis 43, verse 15. So the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house, and they said, it is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may make a cause against us and fall upon us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. So the brothers have their present, their brother, double money. They trek to Egypt, and when they finally appear, Joseph, he recognizes Benjamin. He's like, yep, there's 10, and that is Benjamin, my brother. And he tells the steward, to take them to his own house and to prepare them a meal. Like, all right, get that feast prepared. And they didn't understand what Joseph said. They didn't know why they were going to the house. Remember, they had just, the last time they were there, they were in prison for three days. And it says they were afraid. And they have all these unwarranted fears, right? They're like, it's because of the money that was in our bags. Yeah, that's why we're here. And then they're like, um, yeah, they're gonna frame us for theft. They're going to fall upon us. They're going to beat us up. They're going to arrest us, make us slaves, and they're going to take our donkeys too. They're afraid that what's valuable is going to be taken from them. I like what Adam Clark wrote. He said, a guilty conscience needs no accuser. So these guys, they, they had been guilty concerning Joseph, and they admitted as such previously, that we are surely guilty concerning the blood of our brother. He cried out to us, and we didn't listen. And they had abused their authority as older brothers. And now they assume that Joseph is going to do the same to them. They don't know he's Joseph. They just go, this governor's got power. He's out to get us. He wants to steal from us. He wants to oppress us. Webster calls suspicion the offspring or companion of jealousy. Suspicion. They were suspicious. And one who walks by faith in God need not be suspicious even if someone's not trustworthy. Have you ever thought of suspicion as fear? It's good to put a face on our sin. And I think how many times are we troubled by things that have no basis in reality? They're very troubled. They're, they've just been summoned to the governor's house for a feast. And they think they're getting arrested and robbed. They're suspicious that he had malicious intentions when he had only reason to bless them. He wanted to provide for them. He wanted to unite with them in fellowship. The vast majority of Egyptian citizens had never been brought into, J into Joseph's house, and yet there they are in a place of honor. And instead of being at rest, they were suspicious and afraid, and we can be the same. We can be suspicious and afraid of many things. We can give place to jealousy and envy. And 
So you have been slandered, robbed, treated unfairly. Like even if the worst case scenario happened for them, God is still a redeemer. He's still a savior. He's still with them and will protect them. Has, has, so people have done that to you. Has God ever lied to you? Has he ever stolen anything for you? Has he ever forced you to do one thing in violation of your will? Has he ever forced you? No. God asks us. He invites us. He helps us. He's gentle with us. He tells us all that we need to know to take that step of faith. We're the ones who are guilty of procrastinating, the ones who linger, who don't do his will, who hesitate out of suspicion and fear that bad things are going to happen. We're troubled over what might happen rather than rejoicing over the good God has done and who he is for us. So I encourage you, do not let fear or suspicion rob you blind of the grace, power, and goodness of God towards all and towards you. Verse 19, when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they, stalked, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks, but he said, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys feed. They assumed the money in the bags was the reason for them being there. And so they take the initiative to address the elephant in the room in their mind. They're like, let's just tell them tell him what happened. Like, you know, we, we came here before we found at the encampment, there was double money in our bags. Like we had received our money back. So we brought extra money, that money plus other money to buy more food. And, and we don't know who put it there. And this was all true. They were on the level. And I wonder if they believed their ears when the steward said, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. And I looked at this phrase and he, his first words to them were words of peace the same words that Peter concludes his first epistle with, where he says, peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. So he just hits them with peace right at the beginning. And he says, don't be afraid. I had your money. God, God, your God, the God of your fathers. So it, it seems like he has been introduced to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he speaks forth peace to them when they're expecting to get arrested and robbed and he offers hospitality to them. He gives them water to drink. He, he refreshes them, washes their feet and then feeds their donkeys rather than stealing them, treating them like honored guests. And then he brings Simeon out who had been in jail and that Joseph had made good on what he had promised to do. So instead of being arrested and going to jail, Guess what? Their brothers brought out of jail and now they're rejoicing. They're receiving hospitality. They expect to be treated like criminals, but they're treated by like royalty by God's grace. God had not forsaken them. And the Bible's full. There's so many examples of, he says, fear not. So he commands us, don't be afraid. 
And let's turn to one in Isaiah 41, verse 10. It's like God repeats this over and over and over because we forget and because we do fear and because with each new circumstances, it gives rise to a new fear, a fear we didn't even know we had. And so he tells us again and again, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid if you have to go to a strange place. Don't be afraid when you have to speak to a governor you've never, that, that you feel is against you. Don't be afraid. Isaiah 41, verse 10. It says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them, those who contended with you. Those who war against you shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So God says, don't be afraid, and he tells them why. He says, I'm with you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. And he says, those who are angry with you, they'll be as nothing, a non-existent thing. And how many times have we been worried and anxious about a non-existent thing compared to our God, right? And this is speaking to people who had been under siege by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They were powerhouses with military might. They were just raising city after city, nation after nation. And he's like, they're as nothing. It takes faith in God to believe that, right? When you hear of this wave of destruction approaching your gates, he says, don't be afraid of them. I'm with you. I'm going to take you by the hand. I'm going to redeem you. This didn't mean that things were rosy or easy for them, right? Because what happened in Jerusalem? It was sacked by the Babylonians. The temple was razed and torn to the ground. The gold melted and, and taken along with the bronze. Many people died. Others went into captivity. But had God forsaken his people? No. He brought them. He preserved them. He brought them out with a mighty hand. He reestablished them. And they are in Israel to this day. They, were, they had sinned. They were unworthy of his mercy or help, but God is gracious and good and he extended it to them. And he says, I'm treating you like my child. I love you and I'm gonna protect you. I'm gonna be with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Whatever happens, think of Jesus. And really, we're in the position of Thomas all the time when you feel suspicious, when you feel afraid, where he, he reaches out his nail-marked hands and he says, touch me and see. Don't be faithless, but believing. When you saw those nail-marked hands, it's one thing to look at those hands. It's one thing to examine them in a clinical way. But will you take that hand and go where he leads you? Will you trust him? Lay aside your fear, your anxiety, and suspicion, and choose to rejoice in the living God who loves you. 
Verse 25, then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that he would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, your servant, our father is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and he saw, he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep, and he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face, came out, and he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So they're refreshed, they're washed, they prepared for the governor's arrival. They're like, all right, let's get this present ready. And they prepared it to present before the governor. And they bowed as Joseph had dreamed many years before. And he inquired about their father. Like they're having a pleasant conversation. Hey, your father that you spoke of, is he still alive? Oh yeah, he's, he's alive and well. Oh, and is this your brother? And he blesses him. He said, God be gracious to you, my son. And this reunion was just emotionally overwhelming for Joseph to see all of his brothers there. And he shows restraint. He restrains from crying in front of his brothers. He says he went to his chamber and he wept there, cleaned up his face and came back, you know, put on a strong face. And it's hard to imagine exactly what Jacob, I mean, Joseph felt at that time. We're not told precisely what he felt. There was obviously a special connection between him and his youngest, the youngest brother because of their identity. They were blood relatives. At the same time, Benjamin's not sharing this feeling because to him, this is a, a governor he's been warned about who's a very hard case. He's not to be trifled with. He holds their life in their hands. And so he's not having this emotional reaction at all. He, we're not told anything about him. And it says that his heart yearned. He longed to go to Benjamin. He just wanted to hug him. He wanted to spend time with him. There was catching up to do. And he had been deprived of, of 20 plus years of time with his brother. And he just wanted, just, he had a, a great love for him. But he showed self-control. He concealed his true identity and his feelings because the God-ordained time for revelation wasn't yet. It was still to come. You know, God has shown restraint as well. He revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. He revealed himself to Moses. He gave his law to the, the children of Israel. He revealed himself by the mouth of his prophets. And then he revealed himself in a new way when Jesus Christ came, the son of God in human. So God in human flesh came to preach the gospel and to pre preach repentance and as Jesus began his public ministry, he began to call people and he revealed more of himself to them. And listen to the longing of Jesus as he wept over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 37, because the people that he loved and came to save largely rejected him. It says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And he has his heart 
a heart of love, a heart with longing to just say, I just want to take you all in my arms. I want you to all be with me and be safe and secure and have life to know God. But they weren't willing. Like Benjamin did not recognize Joseph, the Jews did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. How often God's chosen people neglect to run to him in times of trouble, to be swept up in his arms, to be protected by him, and instead seek protection elsewhere. And it's like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, he restrained himself to the end that both Jew and Gentile would receive the gospel and be redeemed. And he shows restraint even now by putting off this season of wrath until more people come to know him. And he's put in the hearts of Christians a longing for people who don't know Jesus to come to Jesus in faith, that they too might be saved, that they also can receive his love. And it's like God, and a day is coming, believer, when we will know Christ as we are known. Amazing to know God. And he urges us to come to him. Genesis 43, 32. So they set him a place by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drink and were merry with him. Now, this isn't a seating arrangement that we're familiar with. Uh, there were three groups of people. There was Joseph sitting at a massive table all by himself. And then you have his brothers sitting at a table by themselves. And then you have the Egyptians sitting by themselves. And the brothers were amazed that Joseph put them in order of their birth. I read that there are 39,916,800 different, different ways you can arrange 11 uh, different people. And to do so on the first go, it's like one in 40 million. To do that first go, they're like, oh, wow, that's amazing. He actually numbered us according to age. And uh, the food was all set before Joseph. So don't think he had this like little table over in the corner and he's like, you know, the kid's table at some feast where he's like got the little table. He probably has the biggest table because all of the food is on Joseph's table. And he, from his table, he gave a portion or directed a servant to take from his table and put it before the others in order. And so they're all literally fed from his table. And they're eating together. And they noticed that Benjamin, he had five times as much as the rest. They weren't envious. They weren't complaining because they all had plenty. It says that they were drinking. They were merry. The word for Hebrew, it makes it clear that they drank to excess. So it was a long meal. The, the wine was flowing and they were very happy together. Now, the passage reveals that Joseph ate separately from the Egyptians because it was an abomination for the Egyptians to eat with the Hebrews. 
Now, Joseph lived openly as a Hebrew. We know that it's like, oh, that Hebrew, remember when he was in prison? When the, ba- the butler said, yeah, there's this Hebrew who has a gift in, uh, he's able to interpret dreams. So he was known to be a Hebrew. That's why they weren't sitting with him because he wasn't an Egyptian, he was a Hebrew. But his brothers probably thought, oh, well, he's like the boss. He's the governor. He eats by himself because he's special. They, he, they didn't understand why they weren't eating together. Imagine it. For 20 years, Joseph had eaten alone. The Egyptians wouldn't eat with him. Likewise, with the exception of his wife and his children. And the reason why Joseph's brothers didn't feast with him is because they didn't know him. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know he was a Hebrew, like they were a Hebrew. And when he later made himself known to them, guess what? They could eat at the same table. He could invite them and they could dine together. And so we have three groups in this picture, Joseph alone, those who refused to eat with Joseph because they knew he was a Hebrew and it was an abomination to them, and those who were unable to eat at his table because they did not know him. I think we wouldn't recognize Jesus if he was in a lineup today because we haven't seen him with our eyes, but he knows us. He has chosen to give us the blessings of the kingdom of God, all that pertains to life and godliness today. And we have this opportunity to have fellowship with him because we know him. We know where our food comes from. We know where the blessing of family comes from. We, everything that we have that's good has come from his hand, from his table. And there's a day coming, the marriage supper of the lamb, where we will be eating with him. And he has a place set aside for us to feast with him. Like David, we can say in Psalm 23, 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Not as a guest, but as a child of God, as one of his own people. Now, we at the table, we should show some restraint, right? We should not be gluttons or drunks. Romans 14, 17 says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In Christ, righteousness, joy, peace, those are always on tap. They're always to be uh, received and walked in liberally, continually. He gives us the Holy Spirit without measure. Those, that's to mark our lives all the time. And on the day of his choosing, God will usher us into his presence with rejoicing, And we will have a place in the presence of Jesus with thanksgiving and knowing him as we are known. And it's a beautiful picture. Like, I don't want to be at the kid's table when there's like, you can sit at the table with the king. And he's got, this is the place for you. Like, I, I, as we, we think about the future, I think about the future and say, well, I want, I, if there's a place at the table for me, I want to be sitting there with him. And in the same way, God has strength and sufficiency and grace and goodness for you today. Don't delay receiving that or approaching him because of fear or suspicion of what could happen when he is good and he abundantly provides all things we need. Think of Joseph's brothers. They're like, why were we afraid to come here? Why were we suspicious when we've been fed, we've been provided for, 
we've been washed. It's like we don't need to hold back from fellowship with God or one another because he has, he has saved us, he has redeemed us, and he's with us. He takes us by the hand. He says, come on, trust me. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you for uh, the fellowship we have with you by grace. Thank you that we don't have to be at the other table. We can be with you because you've made yourself known to us. You know us and we know you. And Lord, thank you for treating us with such kindness when we did not know you, when we didn't recognize you, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, you revealed yourself to us. You have helped us. You have led us by the hand through your law to show us our need for salvation, for repentance, and for eternal life through faith in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would grow in that. We would trust you and not give a place to suspicion or fear or greed or envy. We would rejoice and celebrate your liberality, your generosity, your grace and goodness you've shown us. And through us, Lord, may many people come to know Jesus as Lord. May we walk with you as we take you by that nail-scarred hand as you lead us to trust you and to fear you. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, gird us with strength, that we would be strong in the Lord and in the power of your might. We would uh, do the things that please you and that you would give us a, a beautiful day uh, that you have made. We praise you again for your provision and uh, may you be glorified, Lord, in our conversation and in our fellowship in Jesus' name, amen.